You know, sometimes in life, we don't get the thing that we're expecting. So the other day, uh, the, there was a, an occasion every year where the elementary schools, they do a fundraiser. And part of the fundraiser that they do uh, requires the kids getting dismissed out of school and they go to the local community park there in Quarryville and there's a quarter mile track loop around the park and they run laps uh, around that quarter mile loop. And of course on Friday morning it just so happened to be a pretty uh, humid morning. There were scattered thunder showers coming so it was pretty warm, it was humid, the sun was out and as the kids were running you know you have... You have your kids that wake up that morning and they're kind of like, look, I have no goal. This is a social activity for me. You know, we're just going to go have fun. Then you have your kids that wake up that morning and they're like, I'm breaking the record. I'm going, I'm going to run more laps than anyone ever. Well, about, it's an hour long run, which is a lot for kids, elementary age kids. They're running for an hour or walking for an entire hour. And uh, about halfway, three quarters of the way in, of course, you know, they're getting a little bit tired and it's hot and they're sweating, especially the boys. Man, the boys sweat. They really sweat, you know, and, and they're coming up around, around the corner and a bunch of the boys are grabbing their water bottles and squirting their heads and shaking their heads off. And I see this little boy scoop up his bottle and he's running to the finish line and, and he's, he's jogging and he squirts it down his head and I see all this red stuff and I'm like, that's Gatorade. <laughs> red Gatorade. He forgot he didn't have water. He had red Gatorade. Now... Not getting what you expect, right? That, that's not what he expected. There could have been a fringe benefit to that, though, that perhaps uh, he had some nice flavor running down his head uh, for the rest of the afternoon, and, and it, whenever he probably licked his arm or something, he probably tasted pretty good, but I just found that very humorous. You know, we've been studying the book of John, and we've been studying it for the reason in which it had been written. And what we're finding out is that Jesus was not the Messiah that the people expected. He was not the Messiah that they expected. And you know, John's purpose for writing the book, what he said is he said, these things were written. Jesus did many other signs and wonders, but these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And friends, the implication is that people who believe and respond to Jesus in faith should have vastly, drastically different lives than those who do not believe and who are not able to experience life in his name. And we've been going through this book verse by verse. We're at the beginning of John chapter 7 and we're moving into a new section of John. John chapter 7 to 10 forms its own section. And in this section, the gospel writer John is responding to the Jewish objections that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. He's responding to their objections to that. And particularly here in John chapter 7, at the beginning, we will be confronted with mounting Jewish opposition towards Jesus' ministry. And what's going to be revealed and uncovered is this underlying hatred of Jesus that's prominent among the Jews. The, the chasm is widening between the Jews and Jesus. At the beginning of this chapter, we'll find Jesus moving towards Judea, away from Galilee. He's moving towards danger 
in accordance with God's timing and his perfect plan for his life. And there is a question that saturates this entire section of John. And we're going to let it build and reveal it at the end of our time together today. But over the next number of weeks as we go from John 7 to John 10, could be a year, hopefully not, I'm not sure. But over our next number of months together through John 7 to John 10, there's a question that saturates this text. And as we begin this morning, we'll be in John chapter 7 verses 1 to 13. If you haven't turned there already, you may turn there now. And before we read this portion of Scripture, let's take a moment to pray. Father God, we come together on Sunday morning and we open your word, acknowledging that this is a corporate activity. We are doing this together, Father. That you are at work, your spirit is moving, there's intention and desire on your part for us to change for us to leave here differently than we came this morning. And Father, we acknowledge that it's going to be Your Word that does the work, Your Spirit through the Word, convicting our hearts, changing our minds, motivating us and compelling us to love in the same manner that we have been loved. So Father, it's with that anticipation that we enter your word today knowing that you are about to do a work in our lives. We look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. There are some faulty assumptions that Jesus' brothers have made here regarding his ministries. And at the beginning of our text is after this is referring to Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. Jesus baptized the region of Galilee in both his signs and his wonders and his teaching. He spent much, much time in and around Galilee. And we just finished John chapter 6 where Jesus has just set himself apart as a greater Moses. 
leading his people, proclaiming that his body and blood were more than enough. But we also remember the outcome of that teaching. Reflect back, remember at the end of John chapter 6, what's the sad reality that we're faced with? Many leave. Many leave. It was too difficult a teaching for them. And in spite of the many leaving, and in the face of what the public would have deemed a quote-unquote failing ministry, Jesus faithfully continued in the plan that God had for his life. He was not discouraged. He stayed in Galilee. He continued to minister to a people who were largely rejecting him, both as a teacher and as a leader. And this is a powerful example of Jesus' leadership here for his friends. And it's an example that stands in stark contrast to our cultural expectations of success. Numbers were not the intention. That was not the intention of Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. His intention was to perfectly trust the plans and purposes of God for his life. And the way that he did this, the way he accomplished this, was by revealing himself to those who the Father drew to him. Jesus was not interested in being the people's flavor of the week. That wasn't important to him. Popularity was not his passion. Insta-tweet, face space, and snap book, those weren't his goals. It's not what he was about. You know, and, and I think it's so difficult, friends, because we have these realities in our life that barge in and press upon us. It would make it seem in our culture today that the greatest prize that we could receive would be the applause of men. By some of the things that we see in our culture today that are happening, that, that are just so prevalent, that are all around us, that are so easy to grab us and entangle us. But Jesus' prize did not lay in his acceptance of men. That's not what he was concerned with. His prize was held up within accomplishing the purposes of God. He was the eternal and everlasting Savior. He was most interested in honoring God by performing the work that he had been given to do. And Jesus knew that complete obedience to the Father would mean that people would have exactly what they need. He was not so concerned about giving them what they wanted and meeting their every expectation for what the Messiah would look like. Now this is an interesting time of year in the life of the Jews in our text. This is what was called the Feast of Booths. It was a festival. It was a seven-day feast that was instituted in the Old Testament. Very, very important. And if you want to try to ascribe it to something that we do today, I don't know if any of you here have been to a traditional old-fashioned camp meeting. Anybody here been to a camp meeting? Some of you have been. Okay, good. Well, so that you know a little bit then what this would have been like. So seven days, the people would gather. They would come, and they would celebrate this feast. And let's look at where this was instituted. It was instituted in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. 
On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. So here's what would happen if you were an adult male Jewish man living within 15 miles of the city of Jerusalem. Your attendance at the feast was mandatory. In other words, you could be penalized if you were not in attendance at this feast and you live within 15 miles of the city of Jerusalem. Look at how it says in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 16. Keep the feast of booze seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. Rejoice in your feast, you and your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant. This was a family event. The Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, all who are within your towns. Everyone was to come. This was going to be an enormous gathering. An enormous opportunity for Jesus to show who he truly was. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord your God will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all of the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. So take a look at this. This is a traditional uh, tabernacle or booth of the Feast of Sakat. And that's what's going on here uh, in this text this morning. The time of year is sometime in September, early October. This is not necessarily a harvest party. We're not celebrating grain, but we're actually celebrating uh, the fruit of the grape and olive produce that has come through. At the end of the celebration, a feast would take place. Josephus teaches that this was the most popular of the three Jewish feasts. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Jewish feast, but there were two others. There was Pesach, which was the feast that celebrated Passover. And there was uh, Shavuot, which was the feast of weeks, or Pentecost. The purpose of this feast was to celebrate the Lord God's blessing on what had been produced. It was also to annually commemorate the years that the Jews spent in the desert, on their way to the promised land, and how God protected them in their wilderness wanderings. Many people would flock to Jerusalem to participate, traveling from rural areas. And so now I want you to imagine, you you get your family together, you load everybody up, and you begin your journey. And when you get there to where you're going, this is going to be where you live for an entire week. Here's another example. That one has more modern, maybe that, I I don't know which one's more modern. That one looks like it has the little elastic things around the bottom. That one has tarps. Um, but you could imagine back then they didn't have these things. You're talking about sticks, uh, poles, and you're talking about thatching a roof. And that is where your family dwelt for the entire week. If you lived in the city of Jerusalem, you would build one of these on your roof. Or you would build one near your house. It was a celebration that everyone around and in Jerusalem participated in. Those who already had dwelt in the city, they just jumped right in the participation. During this time, there was a festival, a procession to the pool of Siloam. 
during this celebration. And at the pool of Siloam, water was drawn where it was then taken to the temple and poured over the altar simultaneously with a bowl of wine. And this was all to anticipate what the prophet had written in Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. From the wells of salvation. And so they would have this this time during the procession where they celebrated the anticipation of this. During this seven days, they'd also have one evening where everyone would light up a candle and they would light the entire temple and everything in the city would be lit. Kind of like what we do with our Christmas lights. Bright, majestic, beautiful. The entire temple would be glowing. Isn't it interesting? How significant, how ironic that at this feast, the Lamb of God who promised to the woman at the well this living water which they were anticipating would be in attendance. Not only that, friends, but He was also the light of the world. The light of the world. So while they would light up the city, the light of the world would also be in attendance. Jesus had brothers. I don't know if any of you in here have brothers, but you know how brothers can be if you have them. And if you don't, maybe you've heard. And their intentions here for Jesus, I don't think they're very kind. Uh, you know, they're, they're suggesting that Jesus go up and entertain the people at the festival. You know, hey, everyone's going to be there. Everyone's going to be gathering. You know, hey, your ministry's struggling. You know, people are leaving. Disciples are, they're, they're saying your teachings are too hard. It's kind of failing. You've lost many disciples. You know, go up there and do some signs and do some wonders. Make yourself known. Prove yourself to us and to the world. Why not? This is their intention, kind of like mockingly laughingly of course you know they make it sound a little bit better than that in verse 3 leave here that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing but their assumptions friends are faulty they believe that they know what's best for Jesus and how Jesus might best reveal himself to the world look down at verse 4 what do they say no one works in secret if he seeks to be open known openly And it was not yet Jesus' time to be known openly, friends. There's another interesting observation to make here. that This is Jesus' own physical brothers, most likely Mary and Joseph's other children. And they don't consider themselves to be Jesus' disciples. Notice how they don't include themselves in that. They're very separated from it. And we haven't heard about Jesus' family since John chapter 2, verse 12. And it's clear from this reference that his brothers have completely misunderstood his ministry, his motives, and his purposes. To Jesus' brothers, their world was the Jewish leaders and the people of Judaism who would be attending the festival. But Jesus' definition of world was much broader. And as we would come to find, would include people of every tribe, every tongue, 
and every nation. Not only did his brothers misinterpret and misunderstand him, but we find out in just the next sentence that his own brothers did not even believe in him. Could you imagine? Your own brothers. Such a significant task that you've been given. Such a clear revelation of yourself. In what we've read from John chapter 1 to John chapter 6, Jesus has clearly been revealed to be the Messiah. He's clearly been set up to be exactly who he says that he was. And his own brothers would not believe. They rejected him. Now the Jews in Judea were seeking to kill Jesus. And this goes back to Jesus challenging them to destroy the temple. And Jesus, he healed on the Sabbath. He questioned their authority. Many wanted him dead. And before too long, they would get their wish. Attending this festival, though it was customary, it was a significant commitment for a person to attend who didn't live there. And I want you to understand what Jesus going meant. From where Jesus was located in Galilee to Judea, going to this festival would have been a 70-mile trip. 70-mile trip. It would have taken Jesus about two and a half days of travel, one way, to get there. And he's going to go. He's just not going to go on their time and with their intentions. Look down at verses 6 to 9 at how Jesus responds. Jesus says to them, My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus always knew when his time was. And you know, you think about that line. How often does Jesus say that? My time has not yet come. And it occurred to me this week that that line is a significant testimony to the deity of our Lord and Savior. Because, you know, as as I stand here today and perhaps as you sit in your pews, we can look at our schedules each week and our times and our schedules will change. They'll change in an instant. Something will come up and we'll have to make a change. We'll have to change a plan. We'll have to do something differently than we were expecting at the beginning of the week. But Jesus, being fully God, knew fully when his time was and it was not going to change by the behavior of men. That was not going to change it. You know, this is kind of a big thought, so just bear with me and put it away and break it out later to to really reflect on but isn't it time is a gift for us you know we serve a God that's not confined and controlled by time he is outside of time and outside of space for him it's all finished and accomplished he's not bound by time Time's created, given to us as a gift. And, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things as I think about this, where is probably some of the most diversity and most confusion in the church? What does it regard? End times, right? End times. We have so much diversity and so much differing views and differing pathways that we take. And why? 
Why? Again, perhaps because we are trying to understand time as defined by one who's not bound by it. And we're attempting to understand it as a people who are bound by it. You know, somebody said to me one time regarding that, they said Jesus did it exactly the way, or God did it exactly the way he wanted to do it the first time, and I believe he'll do it exactly the way he wants to do it the second time as well. Amen. (laughs) Amen. But time, this is amazing. Jesus had complete grasp on his time. He knew when his time was. And I think it's incredible because he knew what his time held as well. In this context, this line might anticipate his coming execution, burial, and resurrection, and glorification. But it's also practical in this manner. Jesus is telling his brothers that it is not yet time to go to the feast. But it's there. they can go anytime. It's their opportune time. Go ahead. This is, uh, again, it, 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 it's a usual occurrence of the word. Every other time that Jesus says, my time has not yet come, he uses the Greek word ora, which is, begins with an H, H-O-R-A. But in this one particular instance, he uses the word kairos. Why? It's different. The intended meaning here is different. Jesus is saying, this is not the right time for me to go. This is not the right time for me to go. This is not the right opportunity for me to go to this feast. And this is important to remember for later in this text because there's been some that have used this text to say that Jesus is lying or that Jesus told a lie to his brothers. He certainly didn't do that in this text. That's not what's happening here. And we'll explain that in a second. He goes on in verse 7 to say, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. And friends, that which belongs to the world cannot be hated by the world because there's commonality in ownership. Those belonging to the world serve the same master, namely the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And the greatest tool that he uses against those who belong to him, friends, is our own flesh. It's our own flesh. For it's by our own flesh that we operate, apply, and practice evil. The world cannot hate us when we belong to it. But for those who belong to Jesus, and for Jesus Himself, the world hated Jesus, and it hated the people who belonged to Him at that time. And friends, church, this is a good reminder for us. It is, and it's a difficult reminder for us, but it's good. We will not be loved by the world. I have a good mentor of mine, a good friend who I love deeply, and he tells me that too many people like me. I must be doing something wrong. (laughs) And I understand what he's saying when he says that. I get it because the intention, the motivation behind him saying that is if you're confronting people with the reality of who Jesus is on a regular basis, you're not going to be well-loved and well-liked. Jesus was not. He was hated. He was tormented. He was persecuted. He was mocked by his own siblings, by his own brothers. Jesus would later say this to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus experienced this, friends. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, 
Therefore, the world hates you. So Jesus reiterates, he's not going to this feast with his brothers in the intention that they want him to go. His time had not yet fully come, and for a moment in time, he remains in Galilee. Look down at verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And again, friends, we we lose a bit of the meaning here when we translate this text from the Greek to the English. But essentially what Jesus said to his brothers is that he will not attend the feast for the purposes that they have desired for him to attend. And he will not go with them because it was not his time to go. His time to go was later. He will go when the time and the opportunity is right for him. He's not lying to them. He's not misleading them. He's going to attend, but he's going to attend according to his own intentions and purposes. Jesus is not responding or acting on the whims of his brothers. He's responding and moving according to the plans of his father. And that's an important note here. And after his brothers leave to go up to the feast, Jesus privately moves to join his people in Judea. He wants to celebrate. Friends, this is a time of celebration. Jesus wants to be there. He he wants to be with his people. There's joy that's associated with this event. There's going to be community. There's going to be fellowship. And as we see next week and in the coming weeks, there's going to be opportunity for Jesus to answer this great question that saturates this portion of the book of John. But the Jewish religious leaders there are looking to kill him. Remember that. That's why he has to go privately, friends. Because if he goes there and the Jewish religious leaders find him, he's under the authority of Herod Antipas. And they can capture him. And they can take him and put him on trial right then and right there. But isn't it interesting? Jesus arrives and he is already the talk of the town. His miracles, his works, his presence among the people as the Jews gather together, the thought of the possible Messiah being in their midst, carrying the weight. It's carrying the weight of this daily festival conversation. Could this be the Messiah? Is this him? Where is he? Where is he at? But the problem, friends, is that their conversations are motivated by fear. They're motivated by fear. Some called him a good man. And by this they were guilty of the same misunderstanding as the man who called Jesus a good teacher. The goodness of Jesus isn't dependent on our understanding of it. He is good because he is God. Considering his signs, his wonders, perhaps even his teachings, some were willing to ascribe the title to him of good. But Jesus is only good because he is God. His goodness does not depend on us. But there's another group of people here, and they're pressing a much more dangerous narrative. Isn't it interesting that we find this? We find this in most social settings. People will make up their own narratives about things that they don't understand or they're afraid of. Isn't that true? 
That's what's happening to Jesus here, friends. People don't understand him. They're afraid of him. They're not sure what this is, what's going on. All these signs, all these wonders and miracles. So what are they doing? They're creating their own narratives so that they can explain it. It's dangerous. He's leading people astray. Of course, if this were true, Jesus was guilty of blasphemy against God. Regardless of what they were saying about him, the character of their conversation is made clear in verse 13. Look at verse 13. This is totally revealing the character of the conversations. For what? For fear. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Church, this is an important lesson for us. Something that we can grab hold of and apply. The fear of man will often lead us to wrong thinking about Jesus and about God. And we need not fear man when we're thinking rightly about Jesus. Let me say that again. We need not fear man or really anything when we're thinking rightly about Jesus. Just read Romans chapter 8. Friends, nothing can stand against us. And an incorrect understanding of Jesus will always lead to fear in some area of our lives. Friends, I, 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 I preach to myself. When I say this, I'm a man who struggles with fear. I've talked to you about that before. Maybe perhaps some of you sit here as well and you're Folks that struggle sometimes being motivated by fear and not making decisions because you're afraid of the consequences. Fear can be crippling. Fear can keep us from doing what the Lord's calling us to do. Friends, we have to pray that God would not give us a spirit of fear He hasn't. That He would revitalize in us and grow in us the spirit of power and of love. Love. And of self-discipline. So all throughout chapter 7 to 10, there's this anticipatory question and it's been building. And it's going to continue to build as we go through these chapters together. Jesus is going to answer a question about himself over and over and over again. And the question is this, who is Jesus? Who is he? And John chapter 7 to John chapter 10, this is what that section of Scripture answers. In John 1, it proclaimed His nature. In John chapter 2 to 6, it revealed His ability to do signs and wonders. And now John 7 to 10 will answer the question, who is Jesus? And not just in chapters 8, 9, and 10, but in John 7, there's so many instances that we'll come to. Some true, some untrue. But listen to all the definitions of Jesus in just John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 12, he's a good man. John chapter 7, verse 12, he's a blasphemer or a heretic. John chapter 7, verse 20, some call him a madman. John chapter 7, verse 26, he's a man of courage. John chapter 7, verse 40, he's the prophet. John chapter 7, verse 41, he's the Christ. John chapter 7, verse 43, the offspring of David. And John chapter 7, verse 46, he's an influencer. And what do we know of John chapter 10? 
What does Jesus say in John chapter 10 about who he is? I am the good shepherd. John chapter 7 to John chapter 10 answers the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Friends, perhaps the most important question for us today is that very question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he Lord of our lives? Is it the love of Jesus that is motivating to us? Or are we finding ourselves more motivated by the fear of man? More crippled by the fear of what may happen, what might be, and all of the what-ifs that go along with life? Are we more wrapped up in the praise of man, seeking the applause of man, rather than the glory of God? As our team comes to lead us this morning, and I'm thankful that they're able to be here today, they're going to lead us in the song, Are You Washed in the Blood? And the question that we might have as we close our service today is, are we thankful for His sacrifice? Are we thankful that Jesus truly is who He said that He was? And then the follow-up, do our lives reflect that thankfulness? Let's consider these questions as we sing this song. Stand with us, please. For the cleansing power Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Father, as we go today and we fellowship with our family and friends throughout the week, Lord, it's our prayer that this reality would be true of our lives, that we would be washed by your blood, that we would recognize you for who you truly are and not for who we expect you to be. Lord, when we're confused, when we're frightened, when we are engulfed with anxiety, stress, fear, worry, doubt, insecurity, that we would turn to you. We would turn to your word. We would turn to the power of the work of your son Jesus and what that means for us, Lord. 
Father, might you reveal to us this week opportunities when we can share this truth with others. The great thankfulness that we live through and live by because of what you've done for us. Lord, I pray we would live thankfully, joyfully, and lovingly throughout this week and that people might see the reality of your son's work in our lives by the way that we live. In Jesus' name.